Well, hey, welcome everyone. We are down to the last two weeks of our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me when we have to choose. So we'll be continuing where we left off on page 23 for those of you that have the notes. If you don't have your notes, when I get up to start that, then uh, we'll pass out some notes. You can uh, put your hand up and we'll get some to you. However, prior to me uh, coming and continuing where we left off, we have a, a special guest that's going to speak to you for a bit to share how the Lord has worked in her and her husband's life and their ministry, which is in Florida. Florida. It's a bridge Christian outreach, and Evie and Jerry, Harold, uh, do this ministry down in Florida, and Evie has the distinction, her claim to infamy is that she is the daughter of uh, Gary Brock, our very own Gary Brock. And uh, Gary has told me a bit about their story and how God had uh, worked in order to allow them to start Bridge Christian Outreach. And Evie is in town and uh, is here with us today, so we wanted to uh, have her give that testimony to you. And then she has to catch a flight to go back to Florida. So when she's done, she's going to leave. So she let me know. She means no offense by any of that. But we're delighted that Evie could be here and uh, would be encouraged by hearing your testimony. Good morning. First and foremost, thank you so much for your warm and uh, welcoming for when I came in this morning to worship with you. And it is always such a great time when I can sit and worship with my dad. And I don't know, I'm sure that's how we all feel, but my son is soon to get ready to get married. And it's just so exciting when we can sit and talk about the Lord together. And I have that with my dad. And there are some people that don't have that. So what a blessing it was for me this morning. Um, Jerry and I started the Bridge Christian Outreach about seven years ago. My whole life has been here in Michigan, downriver. I'm a downriver girl. I lived here until the age of 40. And then we moved to Florida. Yes, that makes me 47. It's okay. <laughs> I have my dad's genes. So. Uh -huh. um, but the Lord took us to Florida, and we were, we, we were super involved with our church up here. Uh, very much church people. Whenever the church was open, we were there. And so when we moved to Florida, we just had this huge deficit. We couldn't, we couldn't find a place to worship. We, 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 couldn't, we couldn't find a place to fit in. We, we just, there was just nothing was clicking with us. And we were, it was so sad to us because that was, that's our life. And um, so we got there and Jerry had been taking classes for the ministry. He was going to be um, a pastor. So we had that in our background and, and we knew what we were going to do in that regard. We just really thought it was going to be here in Michigan. We were sure that the Lord was just going to leave us here. And... Through all of our trials, finally, Jerry, I, he, just, he was driving me crazy one day, and I said, please go out of the house because I cannot stand to hear that we don't have anywhere to worship anymore. I'm like, just go fish. And I did. I told him, please go. And he went down to where the bridge is at, and he took his pole. But, but you know, he, I, I wish he were here because um, to hear it from him, but he took his Michigan pole and he took his Michigan bait and he went down to the ocean and all of the guys were like, why are you throwing a frog in the water? This is not going to catch anything here. So he happened to come across, a, you know, a couple guys sitting at the table and he could tell that 
just by looking at them that, you know, they were in some trouble. He wasn't really sure of what was going on. And as he was casting this out, you know, and the guys are kind of kibitzing with him, he's kind of having a conversation with the Lord. And he's like, Lord, I, I thought... I thought you wanted me to be a pastor. I thought this is what you wanted. I'm here, and we can't even find a church. And so, again, I will say, as Jerry says, he's not crazy. The Lord didn't audibly speak to him, but he knew in his heart that the Lord said, then be a fisher of men. And as Jerry stood there, he kind of looked back around at these guys. There's about five of them sitting there, and he says, hey, if my wife and I come down and fix you breakfast tomorrow, this was on a Saturday, we, pick, we fix you breakfast on Sunday, will you eat it with us? And, Jerry, and they said, well, sure. And they looked at him like he was weird because who does that? And Jerry came home and he was super excited. He's like, oh my gosh, Evie, we're going to have breakfast with friends tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah, we have friends in Florida? This is awesome. Where are we going? And he takes me to the store, and we buy a Coleman stove, and we get some eggs, and we get some potatoes, and we get everything we need, and we head down to the park on Sunday morning. And all we came with was the Coleman stoves and the love of Christ. We didn't come to the table and slap down a big old Bible. We didn't do that. We didn't come in saying, hey, we're here to tell you about Jesus. We didn't do that. We just wanted to be the hands and feet and they came up and they looked at us because they really didn't think we'd be there. I wouldn't either. Who's this guy? Tell me he's going to come bring breakfast. And they came up and there were five people, five people. And we had breakfast with them. And Jerry said, we'll be back next week. And the next week we might have had eight or ten. And then as the weeks went on, we continued to grow. And maybe 20, 25 people would show up for breakfast. A lot of these people were homeless. Not everybody. But a lot of the men were homeless. And they lived in the woods. It's right, it's a, I have some brochures I left with my dad, but you'll see it's, I mean, we have the most beautiful church. Your church is beautiful. We have the most beautiful church in the world. We are right in a pavilion and we look out at the ocean. It's just, it's gorgeous. And there's the boats and everything. So a lot of them lived on some hauled out boats. Probably about um, maybe two months in, one of the ladies who was homeless said, hey, are you guys Christians or something? And Jerry said, as a matter of fact, we are. How about a Bible study? And they went, okay. And he went out to his car and he got his Bible and we sat down and we had a Bible study. And then the next week we came back, somebody said, let's sing Amazing Grace. So we all, after the Bible study, sang Amazing Grace. And from that time, we're in our seventh year of this ministry. From that time, it continued to grow into what, we, into what the Lord has done is, is a, 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 a Christian service. We do breakfast first, and then we do service. And we do eggs to order, and we do all on Coleman's. Well, no, we did upgrade. We have the new cool kind of fire burner. It's, you know, but we can have sometimes up to 150 people come down to the bridge on a Sunday morning. And we do eggs to order, and, 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 and what's really amazing is, and I love this, is Jerry still does the cooking, because that is the time when he can have a one-on-one -on -one with each person who comes up. And a lot of times he'd say, how, how do you want your eggs? And a lot of times, because these people are either homeless or what we call um, the least of these, come to us and and they're just oh however you want to make them and jerry's like no how do you want your eggs because that's the way i want to make them so he you can't get less than three though 
So if you come down for breakfast, be prepared to eat because Jerry makes big food. Um, so it has just continued to grow. The Lord then blessed us to open up a food pantry. We do a food pantry for the families, and we serve. Normally, we were open three Fridays a month, and we normally serve 500 or more people per Friday that come through in the food pantry. And we do it all outside, which is kind of cool. We had a building, and... Um, the neighbors didn't like those people, so they did not renew our lease. But that was okay because I, I love God's sense of humor. Because right in the parking lot be, behind where we paid rent is now where we do a free pantry. So God is good. I know, I'm sorry. That was probably wrong of me. But I, I love his sense of humor. Um, I, I think the most important thing that I really like people to know about the ministry is it is not a mercy ministry. We are not. We are a gospel ministry. It is all about the opportunity to share the love of Christ with the least of these. And, and it's just where the Lord led us. Um, and, and just a little background. I'm not going to take up a lot of time, but I was talking with my dad the other day on the phone. And I have always, always had a heart for the poor always for the homeless. And I said to my dad on the phone the other night, I said, you know, Dad, I'm so grateful. You know, we think we're not sure what, what God's plan is in our life, but as you look back over your life, you can see it. As I grew up, my dad always helped out the guy on the corner, always helped out the guy in the corner. He would sometimes, you know, drop us off home, go back, pick the guy up, and put him in a hotel. So I come by it honestly. I come by it through the Lord, but the Lord used my dad to continue to put that in my heart. And I can't drive somewhere without seeing somebody on a bike or with a backpack. And I'm thinking, we got to give them something to eat. <laughs> because it's just, it's just my heart. And, and before I went to Florida, the Lord prepared me. I used to work down in Cass Corridor with the homeless in Cass Corridor. And, and it just, I, Jerry, if he were here, would tell you, because when we lived in Michigan, he would come home and there would never be coats in the closet because I'd put them in my trunk and I'd be handing them out to everybody on the corner to make sure they had a coat or they had a scarf or they had mittens. I think the most important thing I want to leave you with is we are called. We are called to this ministry as a church. We are called to take care of the poor. We are called to take care of the widows and the fatherless. That's our job. And we as, as the Christian church need to make sure that we're doing that and in that doing. You know, because anybody can do that. I see so many other places that aren't Christian that do that. But all they're doing is handing them food. We're handing them life. Life beyond this life. As Pastor talked about today, this, this, this is this life. It's, it's better there. It's the hope we have. It's the building of a bridge with another human being that just feels like they have nowhere to go. And a lot of these people are from churches long ago. Um, we do have uh, addiction and different things that go on. So a lot of these people have been um, alienated from their families but I'll leave you with this last story. There was a gentleman, and he's still with us. His name is Chuck, and I love him dearly, just dearly. But when we first met Chuck seven years ago, he truly cursed us. He yelled profanities at us because we came down under the bridge on Sunday morning where they did all their drinking. 
And how dare us come down there and mess up his drinking party on Sunday morning? And he went three pavilions down. And he would curse us from three pavilions down drinking. Couple months went by. He came to the second pavilion. There's three pavilions. He's still not real happy. He's not really talking to us, and he doesn't really want us there. A couple more months go by. He moves over by the fence, by the water, and he can hear more. Jerry speaks very loud to make sure that the pavilions hear him. Um, and uh, so he was there, and then a couple more months come by, and he comes, and he sits down at the picnic table with us. And after that service, he said, I want to be baptized. And Jerry um, was able to baptize him. We have a huge baptismal, you know, the ocean's right there. So we just walked him down the boat ramp, and Chuck was baptized. But what, what's so beautiful about this story is that Chuck calls it his church. Chuck rings the bell in the morning for church to start. Chuck is probably our best advertisement for new people who are homeless or people who are hungry in the area. It's like, come on down, get breakfast. And, and I think the other part of it is, is we do breakfast first because it's not part of the deal. You don't have to listen to us. You don't have to hear God's word. You don't have to do any of that. We just want to love you. And if you don't come to, to service for um, a year, doesn't matter, keep coming. Because sooner or later, God puts their seat on the seat, and they hear his word. And that's what it's really all about. Um, I, I really normally love to stay so I can talk with people and let you know more about the ministry. I, I did leave information with my dad. We do have a website. You can follow us on Facebook. There are different things to just know what the Lord is doing. And probably what we covet the most from you is please pray for us. It still is. It's, 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 a very, it's a very lonely ministry. And it's more like we're missionaries here in the United States. That's, that's really what it's like. We just didn't go overseas. We're doing missionary work here. We just happened to be in Florida. I said, there's homeless here in Michigan. Why can't we stay? But that was, God said no. Um, and, and this is my home. When I come home to Michigan, I have such a hard time leaving but I do have to, to, to catch a plane and go home. But if you please could, just keep this ministry in your prayers. Um, what we want to do is, is we want to replicate this, what God has done through this ministry everywhere. There should be a, there should be a bridge outreach in every city. We should have that for the people. And, and we go you know, we go to them because some of them don't feel like they can come here yet. They feel so dirty. And they think, I can't go and sit with those people, not knowing that we're dirty too. But they, they, don't, they don't get it. So being able to just go out and, and give the love of Christ, share the love of Christ, is probably one of the most amazing things. And it really, truly is the service. We are built for service. We are only happy when we serve, so I don't know why we fight it. That's when we're the happiest, when we're giving and serving and being the hands and feet of Christ. And, and for that, I'm, I'm so thankful that the Lord allowed me to do that. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you. I get to wear a dress. I did my hair. We go down to the bridge, and I wear shorts and a tank top, and I throw my hair up in a ponytail. And it was so funny. One time I went down to the bridge, I had something to do, and I actually went down like this, and the whole... 
Miss Evie. And I said, boy, if I ever feel bad about myself, I'm just going to do my hair up and come down here. <laughs> but um, it, it's just, there's nothing better than the body of believers. And if I'm this burning coal, but I'm out here, and I'm not here with you for you all to keep me warm and to keep me ignited and to keep me moving forward, I'm going to burn out. And that's what we need to do. So I thank you for this time. Thank you for loving my dad and Nancy. They are so wonderful and special to me. And I just, I, 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 I could stand here and cry about it all morning. But I love them and thank you for loving them. Yes, dad and Nancy, please stand up. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken man the egg man the guy with the cowboy boots so yes we are in um, Jensen Beach which is on the Treasure Coast we're about the best way to say it is we're about 45 minutes north of West Palm so we're on the Atlantic side and it actually is a just a very beautiful place. Anybody want to come and visit? We have an extra room. Come down. You can help us serve breakfast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Pastor. Well, thank you very, very, very much, uh, Evie, for that uh, excellent presentation, encouragement. It's an encouragement to me. I'm sure to everybody else as well. Uh, thank you for your obedience, you and your husband, for being willing to follow the call of God. In, uh, in the path that he's laid out for you. And then these brochures. Gary, you've got the brochures? Okay, and so if you don't mind, put those on the information desk, if that's all right, and that way folks will know where to get them on the uh, desk there. And then we will uphold you in prayer, not only going forward, but uh, we'll pray for you now, okay? So let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the way you work in the hearts and lives of your people and in our circumstances to put us where you want, when you want. Lord, you have brought each of us uh, to the kingdom for such a time as this. But you have placed us in your timing and in your place where we can do the most good to share your name with others. We thank you for the story that we've heard regarding Evie and Jerry and how you've worked in them. We thank you for how you've worked in their hearts so that they're obedient to your call. We pray your blessing on them. Grant them joy in the journey. We ask that you would continue to grant them fruit for their labors. And may your name be upheld in their part of your world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. If you guys will turn to page 23 in your notes. Page 23 in your notes. And we are in our series, When We Have to Choose. It's about decision-making and the will of God. And if you don't have the notes, Larry has some. And then there is also a page 22. We're on, we left off on page 23. But page 22 that John and Jean have that they're going to pass around because I made mention of 10 principles, uh, biblical principles that you can use to help guide you in personal decisions. And they weren't listed on that page. So this takes page 22 and fills it out with those 10 principles. So you can insert that into a new page 22. So the guys are handing those out. You can just insert them where page 22 is in your notebook. And while they're doing that, most of us know Gary as uh, somebody yelled out, oh, the egg man, right? Because uh, Gary gives out, gives out eggs. So it reminded me of a story of a pastor and his wife they were doing some cleaning out in their uh, closet, 
And uh, the pastor uh, came across a shoebox, and he opens this thing up, and it's got $1,500 in it and, uh, and three eggs. And uh, he says, what is this? And she goes, you know, I, for- I almost forgot about that, but for years, uh, going back years ago, I stopped doing it, but, um, but for years, every time you preached a bad sermon, I would put an egg in that shoebox. And he goes, really? Well, I didn't know that. He says, but it's only three eggs. It's been a lot of years. That's not, that's not too bad. He says, what's the $1,500 from? And she said, from selling eggs. <laughs> <laughs> no. Page 23. Top of page 23. We've seen that there are several erroneous methods that are often used in making both life choices and moral decisions such as feeling-based, outcome-based, opportunity-based. While each of these may help contribute to a biblical choice, they can greatly mislead us if we're not careful. One of the common features of these methods is an improper role for feelings as the arbiter of what is best. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. We live in a, a culture that has adopted what I call the autonomy of feelings. You know, autonomy means self-rule, self-governed. And so the autonomy of feelings means that, that feelings are kind of a law unto themselves. And we, we have this view that we've adopted from the culture that feelings just are. And feelings are unruly, and they can't be controlled, and they are what they are. You either have particular kinds of feelings or you, or you don't. You see it in the way we define things like love, right? Love is is purely feeling in our culture. Now, it's not less than feeling, biblically, but it is certainly more than that. But in our culture, love is, love is feeling. And so we talk about falling in love, and you either you just have it or you don't. It's just this thing that just happens or it doesn't. I mean, the magic's either there or it's not. And the thing is, the magic can be there, and then the magic can be gone. And voila, you've got a 50% divorce rate. Because people that can fall in love can fall out of love as well. And so we have this view of the the autonomy of of feelings. But scripturally, feelings are not autonomous. There's nothing about God's creatures that are self-governing, that are not to be placed under the lordship of Christ, including our feelings. Now, that may be a foreign thought to many of you, but it is truth. The, the, the fact is God commands feelings in Scripture. And, and that is foreign to the thinking of many of us. That you, you, that you could command people to have affection in a particular direction and you could forbid people from having other kinds of feelings. And yet the Bible does that. I said that love in Scripture is not less than feeling, but it's more than feeling. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, most of us know, is called the love chapter. And in that that chapter, Paul, who wrote it, speaks of, you can do all sorts of things. If I give my body to be burned in the flames, you all remember that? If I do all of these things, but I have not love. So love is, as you've heard me define before, a a, a choice to do what's in the best interest of, of another. But I'm motivated to do that. Because I have affection for another. 
And Paul is saying, I can do all kinds of things. I can do the greatest sacrificial things, but I can still be devoid of love. If I do all these things, then I have not love. And then the Bible forbids certain kinds of things. Anger. And this is one of the reasons that in our culture, anger just is. So you just have it, and, you, and what you need to do is learn to manage it. And so we tell people to go to anger, what kinds of anger, right? But God says, no, I want you to go to anger eradication <laughs> classes. I want you to get to the root of your anger, which is rooted in the heart, a la James chapter 4. And so we need to lose the idea that feelings are autonomous, that they just are. We have to grapple with our feelings, all of us. And sometimes our feelings are contrary to God's will. And we simply need to admit that humbly and then engage in the, in the struggle of sanctification with regard to our feelings. To put it another way, feelings are not outside the realm of Christian growth. They are not autonomous. They are not entities to themselves. And so we need to then bring our feelings and our thoughts and our decisions, our choices, all of that under the lordship of Jesus. And so that's what we're saying in paragraph 1 at the top of page 23. Contrary to bringing them under the lordship of Christ, our culture, and then we have imbibed in this autonomous feeling approach, middle of that page, many times Scripture is cited in support of these mystical, feeling-based approaches. This session will examine the appeal to feelings in decision-making, including a review of the biblical passages that are quoted in support of it. So first, let's talk about why the, the use of the mind and the intellect has declined in Christian circles, and it's been replaced, at least in part and in some places virtually in whole, by feelings as opposed to thinking the decline of the Christian mind. The Bible places great emphasis on the use of the mind in the processing of spiritual truth. The Scriptures teach that thought precedes action, or to put it another way, belief determines behavior. So Paul commands us in Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but also sing with my mind. That's in 1 Corinthians 14, and some of you will recognize that chapter as the speaking in tongues chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. 14 is all about speaking in tongues. And yet right in the midst of this chapter that's about speaking in tongues, as Paul, who wrote that, is correcting the erroneous approach to gifts, and in particular speaking in tongues, that was going on at this church in Corinth. He says that when you pray and when you sing, whatever you do, it needs to be in conjunction with your mind. Now, why is he saying that? Here's why. Because the Corinthians, like our present-day Pentecostal friends, and I have many Pentecostal friends because I grew up Pentecostal, but the Corinthians, like our present-day Pentecostal friends, have a, have a notion of spiritual communication from God that bypasses the mind. It is the Spirit of God to your spirit, say they. And when the Spirit makes contact with your spirit, it bids you do something, and then the Spirit causes you to do it. 
bypassing the mind. So it's an, it's an involuntary thing that you do because, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but this is, this is the way it goes. You are zapped by the Spirit. And in the midst of a Pentecostal service, the Spirit will move on someone. They will be prompted by the Spirit to do something, and they stand up and do it. It might be run an aisle. It might be fall backwards. And that's why you see those guys. I've been in those services many times when I was a, when I was a kid growing up. And it was just they, the folks say, I can't refuse. The Spirit says, do it. I do it. How does the Spirit say do it? Directly to your spirit. But the key thing here is it's bypassing the mind. And Paul says, no, God's Spirit does not work that way. God's Spirit does not bypass the mind. God, God's Spirit actually operates on the mind in order for us to make choices that are honoring to God. Later in 1 Corinthians 14, in verses 32 and 33, verse 32 in particular, this is what it says, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32. The spirit of the prophets is under the control of the prophets. Now, do you see what Paul's saying there? Just like he says in verse 15 here, I will sing with understanding even as I sing in the spirit. I will pray with understanding even as I pray in the Spirit. And those who would prophesy, the, the Spirit of those prophets is under the control. That's what Paul says of the prophets. In other words, Paul does not buy into the zap idea. You don't just get zapped and then you do this because God works through the mind of the prophet, the individual, to then think about and apply the principles of God's Word. But many obviously have acquired this erroneous idea. It's feeling-based, you get kind of a, and again, I don't mean disrespect, but just sort of an oomph, a zap from the Spirit, and then you do it, and then you do whatever it is. So back to that paragraph, 1 Corinthians 14, pray with the mind, but also the Spirit, sing with the Spirit, but also with the mind. Therefore, Arthur Johnson has rightly observed... Christians have no good grounds for rejecting reason. Christians cannot grasp God's truths without the use of this divinely given ability. The fact that God in His sovereignty chose to express His truth to us in rational words and ideas demonstrates that He intends for us to use our reasoning ability. So as you try to make choices, you, know, you eliminate the sovereignty of, of feelings, the autonomy of feelings, as I've said, but also lose the idea, if you ever had it, that God communicates directly to your spirit, somehow bypassing the mind. God gave us the mind and the ability to reason and to think, and he expects us to use it. Romans 12:2. do not be conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a quote from Harry Blameyers in his book, The Christian Mind, and I'll let you read that on your own, but he's lamenting the fact that people don't think anymore in Christian circles. So why has that decline occurred? Well, the enthronement of feelings you know, is one, but here are some other reasons. Religious reasons have led to the decline of using our minds and our reasoning ability. We have bought in, perhaps unwittingly, to something called the myth of neutrality. And so the idea there is that, uh, that our minds do not have to be intentionally engaged because our thinking is either good or neutral. And so at the bottom of page 23, 
we have this idea that, that there is this neutrality, but in fact, the Bible teaches point A there, man is morally corrupt. And our minds, the way we think in our natural state is corrupt as well. Top of page 24, notice Ephesians 4. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, they are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And remember we saw in the first hour, heart is understanding and, and wisdom and believing and all of that, right? And they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now I want you to see how it starts, though. It starts in the futility of the thinking, which in turn gives rise to the behavior. And then Jeremiah 17.9, famously, the heart, the seed of the person, including the thinking, is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick. Who can understand it? So there is such a thing, not only can we sin in our feelings, we of course can sin in our thinking as well. Just like our feelings are not autonomous, certainly our minds are not autonomous outside the lordship of Christ. And they are morally corrupt and need to be brought under, need to be renewed, sanctified, and brought under the lordship of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Paul says, we seek to bring, you all remember, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. But if we bought into this myth of neutrality then we won't work on the rational faculty, the ability to reason as we ought. But God says we are morally corrupt, our minds need to be renewed, and God is, be, contramundum. It's Latin for contrary to the mundane, the world. It means God is opposed to, contrary to the world. Because the world is contrary to God. The world is hostile to God. You read through your New Testament, the word, the, the word world, translation of the word, Greek word cosmos, the arrangement of values and allegiances and desires that comprise the people in the world, and thus the world system, is contrary to God. And so the world is opposed to God and God to the world. That's what makes John 3.16 so amazing. That it's in that state that God so loved the what? The world. When it says the world, it's just not talking about, you know, the, the rock, the, the earth. It's the cosmos. God so loved the people who are against him. That's what makes a, a Romans 5.8 so amazing. That God demonstrates his love toward us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So God is contramundum. God is opposed to the world, not just in terms of intent to defeat, but in mutual exclusivity. Whatever is of the world's system and values is opposite of God's character and values. And you see that in these famous passages, 1 John 2, Romans 12, James 4. Through common grace, middle of page 24, which is God's grace given to all men, the effects of total depravity, that is the effects of sin on our lives, have been counteracted to some degree so that all men are not equally bad, and no man is as bad as he could be. Boy, thanks be to God for common grace. Yikes. 
I mean, it's bad enough, right? And it's and getting worse. But if, if you didn't have the effects of God's common grace on people in the form of the gifts that he has given to humanity, one of which is, is the restraint of government, by the way, that government and laws and police and military, they restrain the, what would otherwise be the unbridled desires of sinful people. Thank God for that. And the Bible teaches it so, you know, you guys have heard me say, you know, that, that, that cop who pulls you over, you know, thank God we have that cop. And, and thank God we have our military. There will come a time, the Bible teaches, when the restraints of God's common grace will be removed. And then this world will be uninhabitable. It's my understanding from Scripture we won't be here, thanks be to God. Okay? But the Bible calls that a time of trouble such as has not been seen in the history of the world. The great tribulation. And what makes it so great and such tribulation? The fact that God's common grace has been removed. But in God's common grace, even though our minds are sinful, the carnal mind, Romans 8 and verse 7, the carnal mind is hostile toward God, the Bible says. Despite all that, in God's common grace, people are not as bad as they, as they could be. But don't let that fool you <laughs> into thinking that our minds then are somehow neutral or better than they really are. So here's another reason. One is the myth of neutrality. Another one is we bought into things like mysticism, a form of religious practice that seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of Him. As I said, directly to your spirit, bypassing the mind. Pietism is a variety of Christianity that emphasizes personal experience, leads to subjectivism and emotionalism. And then if you look at page 25, another reason that we have deprecated the use of the rational faculties, our reasoning ability and our minds is, goes back to the turn of the century, the last century, and something called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And without this becoming a history lesson, some of you know that the term fundamentalist was coined at that time, 100 years ago approximately, uh, as there were battles that were waged within the so-called mainline denominations, which were increasingly denying cardinal, core, fundamental biblical truths of Christianity, that the Bible is God's Word, was being denied that Jesus is divine, that, that he is God, is being de denied by denominations and seminaries. I could rattle off who the seminaries are and what the denominations were. Uh, I'll just give you one, just as an example. Uh, the, the Presbyterian Church USA. Now, there are different Presbyterian denominations. There's Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. There's the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the EPC. The Presbyterians are as bad as Baptists with how many different things they have, you know. So the acronyms just go on, you know, the P-C-C-C-C-C-C-C-C <laughs> because they've split off that many times, right? But there's the, so the, but the Presbyterian Church USA at one time, and may still be slightly, but it's been declining for, for decades now. But it was the, the mainline Presbyterian denomination, the largest, the most well-known, but these others, the PCA, the uh, EPC, 
came out of that because of the liberalism. But it had been going on going back to the 1800s. Adopting evolution as, as truth as opposed to the opening chapters of Genesis and denying the historicity of Adam and Eve. They weren't real people. I mean, all kinds of things. Princeton Seminary uh, was a, and is a, Presbyterian USA Seminary. And teaching at Princeton Seminary, at the time all of this was going down, about 100 years ago, not quite, you had guys uh, like, that maybe some of you have heard of, uh, J. Gresham Machen, Cornelius Van Til, Robert Dick Wilson. These were, these were first-rate scholars. They were teaching at Princeton, but they were Bible believers. And they were opposed to the liberalism, the modernism. And they couldn't teach at Princeton any longer. They left. And they started their own seminary uh, in the 1930s, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And uh, I've been privileged to take classes in Van Til Hall and Machen Hall at Westminster Seminary in, in Philadelphia. But it was started out of, the, out of that fundamentalist modernist controversy. Now, in the midst of that, you didn't just have the Presbyterians, you had denominations all over the place that were having this kind of problem. People were leaving denominations, leaving the schools, starting their, starting their own schools. But here's what happened. In some cases, believers, Christians, left that, and they also left the education with it because they decided this is where book learning leads you. It leads you to no good. So let's virtually abandon the book learning altogether. So instead of doing what Machen and Van Til and Wilson and those guys did and starting a first-rate seminary, what many of them did was they left and left ac academia behind altogether, or they started Bible institutes that passed for Bible colleges. This is how we acquired so many unaccredited institutions within the orbit of, of fundamentalism. And it goes back in its roots to this, this controversy. And I'll give you one other anecdote, and you'll get, hopefully you've gotten the point. That going back to around the turn of the century, with all of this controversy going on about evolution, the historicity of, of Genesis, is it true? Is it actual history? Did these things really happen? Is the Bible God's Word? Is Jesus truly God and man? With all of that, you had this famous trial in Dayton, Tennessee, the Scopes, right? The Scopes evolution trial, the Scopes monkey trial. And, and fundamentalists were made to look like real idiots as the newspapers in the North <laughs> reported on what was going on in Dayton, Tennessee. And Williams Jennings Bryan, who was prosecuting John Scopes in that, he had been a presidential candidate, had been Secretary of State. He gave in 1896 what is still considered the most uh, famous political speech at a convention, at the Democratic Convention in 1896. You can Google the Cross of Gold speech by William Jennings Bryan. Anyway, he was a well-known dude, but he was a fundamentalist. And he was prosecuting Scopes. And H.L. Mencken, maybe you've heard that name, he wrote for the Baltimore Evening Sun, and he just skewered, yikes, just skewered William Jennings Bryan, all these hicks in his words, from Dayton, Tennessee, and the people up north were laughing at these folks from the Bible Belt. 
And so all of those things had the effect of having folks retreat and say, we're getting out of that academic thing. And if we get into it at all, we're going to have our own stuff and we're just going to do our best with it. And so we have these institutes and these kind of unaccredited institutions. And that's been the case for a large segment of fundamentalism for for decades. And it's contributed then to the decline of the mind and an appropriate focus on the reasoning faculty that God has given to us. So there are those religious reasons. And then there are these cultural reasons. One is the connotations of our terminology. And connotation, you know, there's denotation and connotation. Denotation is what something actually means. Connotation is what it's come to mean and be associated with. So you say a word and people associate it with something. That's what I, it doesn't actually mean that, but it connotes that in people's minds. That's what that is. And so what are the connotations of, of things like discrimination? You just say the word discrimination and it has a bad connotation, right? To discriminate is bad because in our minds, the only kind of discrimination we really talk about is racial discrimination. So you don't even have to say racial, you just say discrimination. But the truth is discrimination is actually a very good thing. To discriminate uh, comes from uh, the, the Greek word to to make a judgment, to make an evaluation. And the question is, what's the basis of your evaluation? And if it's race, well, then that's, a, then that's an invalid and improper evaluation. But the idea of discriminating and having discriminating thoughts should be and used to be a very good thing. Or criticism, the connotation of criticism. It simply means a serious examination and judgment of something or the act of passing judgment as to the merits of anything. But, of course, we live in a time when judging, yikes, I mean, everybody's life verse is what? Judge not that you be not judged. And how many times do you hear people say, I'm not judging, but every time you make an evaluation, you're judging. And that's okay. (laughs) The question is, what kind of judgment are you making? Jesus was not condemning in Matthew 7 and verse 1. That's where he said, judge not that you be not judged. But then he goes on to talk about the kind of judgment he's speaking of and it's hypocritical judgment. Jesus could not condemn all judgment. He couldn't. Here's why. (laughs) Because the same Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 24, John 7, 24, I'm quoting, judge righteous judgment. So Jesus was not and could not condemn all judgment. It was particular types of judgment, hypocritical judgment. So, you know, lose that, you know, disclaimer, I'm not judging. Yeah, you are. Own up to it. Now, what we really, I think, mean is we're not trying to be judgmental, holier than thou. And if that's what we mean, then, of course, that's true, and that's a good thing. And let's make that clear when we are judging somebody. Hey, I'm judging you, but I'm not holier than than you are. I'm trying to help you in this particular area. I'd hope you would do the same thing for me. But make no mistake, I'm making an evaluation. Think about this. Does the Bible warn against false teachers over and over and over again? It does, right? How do you know a false teacher from a true teacher if you don't make a judgment? So the Bible is replete with commands that require that you make evaluations and that you make judgments. So there's the connotations of terminology and then the last two because time is up. There's the decline of education. 
we have in, we're blessed in our church to have people who are in the teaching profession. And we have some just marvelous first-rate, absolutely first-rate professional teachers in our education system who are in this church. We have a bunch of them. And every, I haven't been in their classrooms. I just know them, and I've heard their reputations. And we are blessed with that. And I thank God for the ministry that they're carrying out in that mission field. And if everybody were like them in the teaching profession, you know, praise God, hallelujah. Unfortunately, they're a minority. And unfortunately, they're working within a system that is broken badly. Badly broken. And therefore, we have the decline of education. So that even if people can get past all the connotations and all the nonsense about you can't judge and evaluate and all that, even if they can get past all that, they haven't learned the capacity, the discipline of mind to make appropriate decisions and evaluations. So that contributes to it. And then lastly, pluralism versus relativism. Pluralism and relativism. And what's the difference between those and then we'll be done? Pluralism plural, many, right? So that means we live in a society that values everyone being entitled to his or her opinion. That's pluralism. And we have constitutional guarantees of the freedom of speech to express those opinions, and thank God for all that, right? So I'm very glad we live in a pluralistic society because it means we can do what we're doing here. And then other people, you know, so (laughs) the Constitution gives you the legally right to spout off what you're wrong on. And so good, okay? So people are wrong about all kinds of stuff, but they've got the constitutional right to spout it off because we're a pluralistic society guaranteed by our Constitution. But pluralism often gets mixed up with relativism. The fact that everyone has the legal right to express his opinion does not mean that every opinion is equally valid. And that's what relativism is. Truth is relative. you got your truth, I've got my truth. And that is not correct. But many people fail to make that distinction, and in failing to make that distinction, then you got yours, I've got mine, who can make judgments? How can we make choices? All right, we will pick it up there and finish up next week. Let's ask the Lord to bring us back safely next week. Tonight, 5 o'clock, is our celebration dinner. Get your tickets before you leave today. Come prepared to give a testimony. We look forward to a great time together. Men, this weekend is our men's retreat. Register for that before you leave today. Now is your last chance for both of those. Father, we thank you for the blessings of this Lord's Day. We thank you for the opportunity to sing praise to you, to learn of you, to be challenged by your word and your spirit. We thank you for the opportunity to encourage and be encouraged. We thank you for the encouragement of our sister, Evie. We ask uh, your blessing on her and Jerry and their ministry. We ask you, Lord, to go with us. Grant us safety and your grace. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.